We finished up with Exodus last week in our series on Moses, the life of Moses. Uh, we're continuing that series, going to uh, have a couple of sermons in Numbers and I think one in Deuteronomy and then we'll go into a, a new summer series. But if you will recall, if you've been in, in any of these sermons the past uh, several months, you realize it's, it's not really about Moses as much as it is about God, the, the God of Moses. It's about God's love for his people who actually are pretty unlovable most of the time and uh, how that, that undeserving love of God for his people, how important it is for his people to want to share that with the world. So really this series is all about what God's doing in the world, what God has done for his people. He's redeemed them, he's saved them, uh, saved them to a, a life in the presence of God in a unique way. And yet it's salvation's not simply to enjoy life with God as important as that is. It's actually to be freed to serve him and to love him and to show the world how unbelievably real and good and powerful and loving this God is, this God who we've come this morning uh, to worship. But even as I was sitting up here this morning, if you are like me, it is much harder than I ever thought it would be to, to show the world God's love. Life in the kingdom of God, life as a redeemed uh, community of people, it's, it's much harder to live than, than I ever thought. I'm sure part of that's because I, I didn't really give it enough attention when I was younger. Um, but even now that I am trying to give it more attention, it's, it's difficult. Even from our New Testament passage, uh, life in the kingdom, life with God, it's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are all things that I think everybody in this room would love to feel more of or experience more of. The fact of the matter is those are, those are focused or they're... They develop because we're, we're focused on something other than ourselves. We're focused on the God who brings these things to us. And, and if you're like me, <clears throat> I, I kind of like myself more than I probably ought. Right? Um, I think I'm more important than uh, I actually am. And I'm not even talking about as a pastor here. I'm talking about just as a man. I, I just think I'm pretty important. I am important, but not in the way that I think. You are important, but not in the way that we naturally think. We have a great passage before us this morning. It's Numbers 12. The, the, the focus is on uh, Miriam. I don't know if you remember Miriam. She was, she's talked about quite a lot in Exodus. Miriam is the older sister to Moses and Aaron. 
Miriam's a, a pretty important person. And we didn't, by, by the way, when we put down the sermon series, we, we had numbers 12 on May 8th, and unfortunately, way back in, in, uh, in the fall, I, I didn't even think about Mother's Day. So this has, this has nothing to do with mothers, but it does have to do with women. I think it's uh, very appropriate. Um, it's a great passage, probably not great in the way that you would think. So I'm going to tell you, before we read Numbers 12, I'm going to tell you the points so that you can kind of follow along and, and see where we're going to go. The, the first point is this, the, the mess that Miriam and Aaron make is primarily focused on Miriam, though. So it's the mess of Miriam, and let's put in parentheses, and Aaron. Second point is the meekness of Moses. And there's enough M's, so the third response is God's provision through the mess and through the meekness. So we're going to talk about the mess, we're going to talk about the meekness of Moses, and then we're going to talk about how God works through, uh, through meekness, the meekness of Moses in the midst of the mess to give God's people everything they need to, to do what we are called to do as Christians. So let's just, if you have your Bibles, open up Numbers 12. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's not a long chapter. If you don't have your Bibles, it's printed for you in your bulletins. This is Numbers chapter 12. And, and let me just give you a little context. Last week, Matt preached on Exodus 40 where... The people of God are on the mountain of God and they meet the glory of God. And all of Exodus was about them getting to meet God, being freed to meet with God in Exodus 40. Now in Numbers, what happens is they leave the mountain of God and they're moving into the promised land. So it's like the, the second half, if you will, of this journey. Not as far as time, but at least in, in this idea here. They are now... After Exodus, after they've met with God, after they've been redeemed, they're now moving into the promised land. So Numbers 12, beginning in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses, he was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and they called, he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly 
We have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. The people died, did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge uh, that without you and your spirit's help this morning, we have no hope. We have no hope to understand this passage. We have no hope to be able to apply it to our lives. And we simply ask that you would help us this morning, that you would be near us this morning, that you would love us this morning, and that you would encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Uh, even as I was reading that passage, I was thinking, what are these ladies thinking? A couple of points before we talk about the mess, some preliminary points, the, the mess that Miriam and Aaron make here. Because they begin in verse 1, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And then they say, has the Lord indeed spoken through Moses? There's a couple of things that that I think we we need to address first. First of all, God's not picking on Miriam here. Moses, who we believe wrote this book inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not picking on Miriam. Miriam is of pivotal importance when it comes to God's work of redemption for his people. She's very, very important. If you remember back in Exodus 2, she helped save Moses when he was an infant. She did an amazing thing as a young woman. She is an amazing woman. She honored her mother and her family going and talking to Pharaoh's daughter, making it possible for Moses as an infant to stay with his mom. She is described, if you remember, in Exodus 15. She is a prophetess. She she plays a part, leads the women in song. She plays a part in the first psalm recorded in Scripture. It's precisely because Miriam is so important that this chapter is written. The text is clear. The passage starts, you can't, you can't understand it in English, but in the Hebrew, the passage starts with a feminine singular verb. It's about Miriam leading here. She is named first, and the Hebrew points to Miriam as the one who plays the pivotal part even in this rebellion. But this is not an attack on women. This is not an attack on Miriam because she's a woman. She's not judged because she's a woman. She is judged for her sin like any other human being. And the text presents her as a very important part of God's economy who still struggles with sin. Just like everybody in this room. It's actually just the opposite of what the world thinks when they read Numbers 12. 
You have to realize there is no other ancient religious document that would even give a chapter to a woman. In a highly selective account, as Israel goes through the desert for 38 years, Miriam has a very important part to play in God's story. The story here, and this passage particularly, points us to how important Miriam was to God and his people. So that's the first point. Because if you go read some of the books that are even being written today, they take this and they say God doesn't like women. And I'll be honest with you. That is so untrue. It is unbiblical. Because God in his word is always lifting up women, and they are important. Miriam is very important. The initial attack of Miriam, though, Miriam and Aaron, concerns Moses' wife. She's a Cushite. This is the second preliminary point before we get to the mess. It's a little puzzling here because the only wife that's been named to Moses is a lady named Zipporah. She's always described as a Midianite. Verse 1, though, seems to point to the fact that Moses may have taken a new wife. We don't don't know if Zipporah has died. We don't know uh, what has happened. And this may be Zipporah. It may not. There seems to be a basic resentment of race here. But I need you to understand, that is not the real issue here. Because always, when, when it comes to racism, there's always something much deeper in the heart of man that God wants to deal with. The wife thing here is a petty complaint. Even their complaint about Moses is a petty complaint. And they're both serving to hide the real issue behind Miriam and Aaron's grumbling. The real issue is this. Miriam and Aaron, they're jealous. There's a subtle type of coveting that's underneath all that's going on. They're grumbling, they're discontent, they're feeling left out. The real issue is in, chapter, in verse 2 where they say, how come Moses is so special? You see, we didn't read it, but if you were to go back and read Numbers chapter 11, you would realize that as the Israelites leave the mountain of God to begin their journey to the promised land, you know what happens again? It, you should be able to guess it by now. The people complain. I promise you, I've read Numbers 11, I don't know how many times. I always thought it was the same grumbling that happened in Exodus. This is new grumbling about similar things concerning food. They grumble again after meeting God. Moses in Numbers 11 is at the end of his rope. So Moses cries out to God and he says this, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And God in response sends his spirit on 70 elders to help him because God knows Moses can't do it alone. So Aaron and Miriam, they are feeling left out. It's part of the reason why I picked Galatians 5. They're walking according to the flesh. Here's the mess. 
It's, it's tied together when, when Miriam and Aaron, they say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through and with us? And the answer is obvious to everybody. Of course God has spoken through Miriam. Of course God has spoken through Aaron. We've seen it all throughout Exodus. So the Cushite wife is not the issue. Moses isn't the issue. The mess here is a dissatisfaction with God and how he has arranged things. It's an insecurity about who they are and how God is using them. In fact, it's like this. Miriam and Aaron, they're acting just like Israel has from the very beginning. They're grumbling. Ian Duguid, an Old Testament scholar, he says this. Grumbling may not be listed among the seven deadly sins, but in the story of the Exodus, grumbling against God ended up being very deadly for thousands. Grumbling is not just bad for Miriam and Aaron, it's bad for the whole community. He says, grumbling and murmuring are weeds that may start out small, but if left unchecked, they grow very deep and bitter roots. So here's the application. Envy, jealousy, discontentedness. It's a source of grumbling. It happens in our lives as well. It's, it's a look or a longing. It's, it's walking by the flesh, but it's a look or longing by which we imagine that we would be happy or we would be happier only if God would give us this or that. That we would be happier if we had this possession or that position. That we would be happy if we had this particular salary. And it's looking in a negative way at those who seem to get the better things in life. So, so why are Miriam and Aaron, why are they grumbling? Because Moses just got a, a, a new lady. So they're going to pick on our race. Moses gets to, to meet with God, so they're, they're going to complain against Moses, but actually, because they don't go talk to the Cushite wife, they don't go talk to Moses, they talk to people that don't really have anything to do with it, and it's bad. It's a big deal. And because God cares for his people, because God really does care for Miriam and Aaron and the rest of the people... He can't let that continue. God is always at work making us into people who will live for him. He cannot simply allow us to continue doing things that draw attention away from the glory of God. And envy and grumbling and discontentedness, it changes us into something ugly. And I'm not talking about physical looks. I'm talking about what's inside that's the root of the problem here with Miriam and Aaron. They're grumbling, they're discontent, they don't like the way God is orchestrating things. Which leads to the second point, which is why the meekness of Moses is so, so important. Verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, Honestly, if you're paying attention, you ought to be thinking, doesn't seem like something a humble person would write. Right? Led some commentators saying that the word should be translated miserable. 
You can actually translate that word being miserable. So you'd read it like this. And I've had a lot of fun with this. I thought I'd share it with you. Now the man Moses, he was the most miserable person in all the earth. And I think if, you, if you've tracked the life of Moses, you could make a case for that, couldn't you? I mean, his life started out pretty well at the beginning, right? He was raised in Pharaoh's house. He had a great education. I'm sure he ate good food. He had fun parties, I would imagine. But as soon as he met God, it went all downhill from there. Hmm. He tries to save his people and they run him out of town. He works for his father-in-law with sheep. He may have been a great father-in-law, but that doesn't sound like a fun time to me. From day one, the people complained. And now in Numbers 12, it's not just the people. It's Moses' big brother and sister. It's his family. And you could make a pretty good case that he ought to have been miserable, right? That was all just for fun because I'm not convinced. I don't think that's what it says because you want to know why? Miserable people don't do what Moses does here. In fact, what we have in the rest of this passage is a perfect definition of what it means to be the meekest man that ever walked the face of the earth. See, meekness is the presence of strength controlled by something bigger and better. That's what it means to be meek. It's the presence of strength that is actually controlled by something bigger and for some better purpose. Moses knows he's unique. He knows he's special to God, but he realizes it has nothing to do with him but everything to do with God. And therefore, in this passage, what Moses does, he holds back his power that he has because he meets with God face to face. He holds it back for the good of those around him. And I want us to understand what meekness is from the rest of this passage. Here's meekness. God says, with other prophets, I make myself known. I make myself known in visions and dreams, but not so with Moses. I speak with my words very clearly, not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Verse 7 says, he is faithful in all my house. Moses has a level of intimacy with God that other people don't. Moses has a one-on-one relationship. He is in a different class. He has immediate access to the owner of the house. He has total authority here, and he could call down fire if he wanted to. That's why verse 8 ends with Miriam and Aaron. Why are you not afraid to to talk about Moses like this? Why are you not afraid? Moses is left there with those who have possibly hurt him the most. He's left there in the place of God with all this power. And what does he do with it? He pleads on behalf of the one who has hurt him most. Aaron acknowledges Moses. He cries out and he confesses their sin to Moses. He says, please do not punish us because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Miriam's quiet. But what does Moses do with all his power? He begs God. He says, please, twice, please, healer. This is meekness. 
This isn't a miserable man. This is a meek man, a man who meets with God, who sees the form of God. And for the one who has hurt him most, he pleads on her behalf. Moses, at this time, is the meekest man who walked on the face of the earth. And it's through the meekness of Moses that deals with the mess in a way that is powerful and freeing. It's the third point. God's response and provision in the mess through the meekness. And when I read this last part here, it's going to sound harsh to our ears. In some sense, I guess it is. But I'm going to make the case that it's appropriate, that it's helpful, that it's full of God's grace, and it's exactly what Miriam needs, it's exactly what Aaron needs, and it's exactly what the whole community needs so that they can be free and follow God's call on their lives as God's redeemed people. Look at verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. So Moses cries out to the Lord, please heal her, please. And this is what God says. Even if her father spit in her face, would she not be unclean for seven days? God's not saying that people should spit in people's faces, but that's what would happen if if you were unclean because you came into contact with somebody else's bodily fluid. He says, let her be shut outside the camp seven days and after that she may be brought back. So understand this, God is not saying he's spitting in her face. He's not even saying a father should spit at his daughter. Job speaks of people spitting as he passed by in his humiliation. Spitting is a a sign of shame and disgust. And and what it is is Miriam's leprosy on the outside was showing what was on the inside. And God is saying it has to be cleaned. It needed to be fixed. Seven days is the minimum time for restoration because leprosy meant that people needed to be separated from the rest of the community. Why? Because leprosy is contagious. Grumbling is contagious. Discontentedness is contagious. It's it's not just bad for Miriam. It's bad for all of God's people. God is showing us that sin is not only bad for the person, but it's bad for the whole community. And God is saying what Miriam did and Aaron, but what Miriam particularly did was really, really bad. But God is so gracious and Miriam is so important to him. He loves her so much and he loves his people so much. He responds with exactly what is needed so they can go on and do what God's called them to do. It's easy to miss, but we know it was good because of the last verse. Verse 16. The people waited for Miriam. And then they all set out, including Miriam. And they end up camped in the wilderness of Paran. And you know what that means? They're waiting to go into the promised land. The mess that we can make, the meekness here of Moses helping in that mess and God responding To that meekness. I just have a, a, couple of, a couple of ideas of things that I think are important for us to learn as God's people here at Redeemer. I, th- I think the antidotes to envy and complaining, the antidotes to discontentedness, it's humility and godly contentment. 
And it really is important for us. It's important particularly for leaders, but it's important for each and every one of us to remember that we're, we're not here to draw attention to ourselves. Because that's what it means to walk in the flesh. We're, we're thinking we're more important than everybody else. It's important for us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but actually to live for God's glory because, he's, because of what he's done for us. And Miriam and Aaron here, they get caught up in discontentedness. They thought they were important. And they were important. They are important, but not important in the way that they thought. And humility and godly contentment, that's what they needed. So how do we get that? I think it's, it's in this text. I didn't mention this, but the first thing that I think is important for us to realize in verse 2, God heard them. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible reminder. It's a terribly good reminder. God is the unseen partner in every conversation. The invisible observer of all that occurs. And, and, I, and I want you to understand something. It's not bad that Miriam and Aaron were frustrated about maybe their role. It's a very human thing. The problem is they didn't go, with, they didn't go to the source of the problem. They, they didn't, why didn't they go to the Cushite wife? Because they knew they were wrong. They didn't go to Moses because they knew they were wrong. They went and they talked to other people that couldn't help them. And in actuality, what they should have done in, with their grumbling hearts, right? Come on, I'm, I'm talking, I know you guys. You're like me, you're grumblers. We're all grumblers. Can, can we, even on Mother's Day, we're grumblers. What should they have done? They should have taken that grumbling to God himself because he hears it anyway. He knows what we're saying. He knows what we're dissatisfied in. He knows our frustrations. We might as well take them to God. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I think it's most important. And really, we're talking about how do, how do we become humble? How do we become meek? How do we become content? In Luke 9, you can read it for yourself maybe this afternoon. As the, day, as the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, this is in the middle part of Luke chapter 9. It's a reference to the judgment that Jesus was going to take for our grumbling, for our sin. As the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up on the cross, he sent messengers ahead of him into a village to make preparations for his arrival. You know what Luke tells us those people did? They did not receive him. When the disciples, James and John, who were walking with Jesus, when James and John saw, you could say it like this, the people spitting in Jesus' face, the disciples said, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? You know what Jesus did? He rebuked James and John. Jesus could have, probably should have, called down fire to judge these people because after all, when the Son of God comes calling, you probably need to be ready. But instead of sending judgment on them, he's going to the cross to take the judgment on himself. That's meekness. Jesus himself 
describes himself as, as meek when he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For those of us who are weary and heavy burdened, maybe with our own sin, maybe with the sin in the world, maybe because of the bad things that are happening to you at this particular moment, Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. And he says this, and you can translate it like this, for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It is true, in Numbers 12, Moses was the meekest man in all the earth, but he wasn't meeker than Jesus, because when Jesus Christ comes, Jesus Christ, the one who did not only spend time face-to-face with God, the one who is fully God and fully human, in his great power, instead of bringing judgment when he first came and dwelt among us, he died in our place and took that judgment on himself. He took that judgment that we deserve for our discontentedness, for our grumbling, for our envy, for our jealousy, for speaking badly about people because of who they are or maybe what God has allowed them to do. He takes that judgment, not only so that we could be forgiven of our sin, as important as that is, but he he takes our judgment so that grumbling and that discontentedness can be transformed into grateful hearts, humility, meekness, and contentment because we know that God, in spite of who we are, loves us that much that he won't let us stay in that mess, but he moves us through the meekness of Jesus Christ and changes us from the inside out. That's what will make us a humble people. That that is what will make us a contented people. That is what will make us meek so that we can now rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ with new hearts and we can go out into that world and we can show people the glory of God. That's what we're here for. But until we understand who God is and what he's done for us, Where Jesus Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Instead of judging us, he has saved us and he's given us new life. And we now can be the people that God has called us to be. Miriam here is a woman like any other woman who struggles with sin, whom God loves. Aaron is a mess himself. He got in trouble in Exodus so bad, I think God just let him alone here. The meekness of Moses points us to the meekness of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is the one who has all power, and he's taken that power. He died on the cross, and that power raised him from the dead, and he gives us new life, and we can now live with power because of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's our calling as a church. It's for individuals, but it's for us as the body of Christ here in the city of Athens to show forth the glory of God, all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for, um, we thank you for his power. We thank you for the power that we have seen on the cross, even as, you, even as he was buried in the grave. That power that raised him to new life, that power that's now available to us to live in a way that you've called us to live. Would, would you help us remember your crazy love for us? Would you help us to remember your glory? Would you remind us as believers
that you've given us everything we need to do the things you've called us to do. Father, if there are any unbelievers here this morning, would they see the love of Jesus Christ, the meekness, his power, his goodness? Remind us that you are even now making all things right. In Jesus' name, amen.